All right, fans, stay tuned for more out of it, but like it or not, that's the way it is. And that's the way it should be, Mean Gene. L.A., baby, hometown, I'm coming home. And I said to you, brother, when I won the WWF title January 23rd, I'd take on all comers. Well, this is going to be the war to end all war. Several of my friends were there, man. All those big dudes from Gold's Gym. My main man, Pete Grimkowski, was ringside. Ooh. Mr. T was there, and Sylvester Stallone was upstairs. And you know something? My main man, Cy, told me after the match, I've never seen a war like this in L.A. You're L.A.'s favorite son. He made me look around. I saw all the posters, Hulkamania run wild. In Hulkamania, you're our favorite son. That's why this war must end. Two referees, no disqualification. John Studd, I like the pain. I like the power you possess. But these are the 24's pythons, the largest arms to ever enter Gold's Gym Daddy. I've been hanging and banging for years, and in my hometown stud, no disqualification, two referees. I can get b -b 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 bad to the bone, Daddy, just as far as I want to take it. I can bust you up, rip and tear, gag and bite brick bones and scar faces, because they're going to love me there anyway. And when I leave, I'll still be their champion. It is going to be a war indeed. John Stud of this fan hopeful. All right, so it is hot today in Buffalo, and um, I actually got in a little bit of trouble on Twitter yesterday. Someone tried to embarrass me okay, because I was complaining about the weather on there. And uh, you know how you can do that thing now on Twitter where you like put a tweet sort of like inside of the tweet? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Because yeah, I always had a, it was a little confusing what you were trying to... Right. So someone put my tweet in there and was like... Here, here's something you can reference next year during winter Snow. when people are yeah. complaining. All right. Let me make something very clear <laughs> about the weather, okay? Just because you don't like it when it's extremely hot does not mean you like it when it's extremely cold. Right. Okay? Yes. The snow when it's extremely intense and shutting down the roads and you're swerving off and the cold when it's in the negatives, that's horrible. That sucks. I don't like it. But the world is set up to accommodate that to a much larger degree than the world is set up to accommodate yeah. the heat. Okay, when you're hot, it's a lot harder to get cold than when you're cold to get hot. You don't need to love the winter to hate the hottest day of the summer. Yes. Yeah, I was telling my daughter all day today that this is maybe the hottest day of her life because she's I, three. And I was not complaining about the weather in the summer on Saturday when it was 81. Right, right. I was like, oh, it's 81. It's a nice day. It's about what what I expect. But when it's 13 degrees hotter than that and it's 100% humid, that's just not good weather to me. I don't care what the weather was like in December or March or any other month. Today it sucks. Speaking of that, I saw in the news today that uh, we had that snowvember, they called it, that real ugly snowstorm in November when it dumped like six, seven, eight feet on people in the areas around here in Buffalo. They piled all that snow into different whatever areas, and I guess some of it is still there. Like if you look like they're Just looking like die, under huh? garbage and yeah. stuff like that and finding bits of snow still. So 
We had a ridiculous amount of snow. Well, congratulations to the survivors. Yeah. Uh, it is episode 23 of season 5, July 29th, 2015. Good show today. Uh, Joe Piznanski is on the show. Uh, it's his third time on, first time episode 6, and then the second time was at the end of the circus that was his second book. Right. And now today he's on to promote his next book. Well, that that was actually his third book, Paterno. This is his fourth. He also had a book on the Negro Leagues and a book on the Reds, Cincinnati Reds. Okay. The 70s Reds. So he's on to do that today. We did it earlier. It's 30 minutes. It's good. It's really good. Uh, and then I mentioned this last week that I was about ready to do this. Uh, we are going to talk fantasy football with Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network and the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. Sweet. So excited about that. Uh, we got some updates in the book club about book of the year and a new book that I love. I actually read it over the weekend. Uh, I'll do one last thing on the Hulk Hogan drama, and we'll get things started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so normally this kind of thing usually breaks five minutes after we record a podcast. Ooh, which is this? But earlier today, the NFL upheld uh, Tom Brady's shocking uh, four-game suspension. And I'm surprised because they never do this. No, never. But we shouldn't have been surprised uh, because if you think about it, they were not going to admit that that $5 million uh, Wells report Right. Or whatever was not true. And also, um, you know, I guess when you suspend a guy for a drug thing, um, I don't know. A lot of times, this really would have been an example of Goodell ruling against himself if he changed. Right, yeah, he he saw the appeal. This would right. have been 100% that. Um, I can't quite... I'm not talented enough or knowledgeable enough to quite explain how Le'Veon Bell suspension being reduced from three to one is different, but it is somehow. I yeah, think. I, I mean, this one's bizarre. A three to two. Yeah, this one's bizarre, and uh, his agent is not happy about it. They call it unprecedented, and that's true. He says that the decision alters the competitive balance of the upcoming season, which is also true. Um I don't know if they'll go to court next. I know that's well, the kind of NFL, what they all along. The NFL has tried to get ahead of them and is asking a federal court to uphold their suspension. Oh, okay. The reason they're doing that is because they don't want the NFLPA to file in Minnesota, which is where they probably would have done it and is an area where they've gotten consistent uh, rulings over the league. I mean, the difference with this one is this is – a suspension that's based on something that directly affects on the field things. Uh, I mean, their their treatment of off the field, domestic violence, those type of issues have been really poorly done. But those things don't affect the integrity of the game, whereas this may have. To what degree, I, I don't know. But for them to uphold it, I guess they're trying to protect the My integrity. problem is just this. They didn't prove it. No, I'm sorry they didn't. Yeah, Some guy on Twitter, I think he's one of your buddies, um, told me I, I have half a brain if I don't think he's guilty. 
And I'd like to tell that guy, look it, you're a Bills fan, dude. Oh. And you're totally letting your Bills fandom uh, cloud in your hate for Brady cloud this. They didn't prove it. If they proved it, fine, suspend him. But they didn't. It's ridiculous. Uh, all they have is a bunch of information that leads them to conclude that. Right. That's not proof. Now, they are a private entity who can declare the burden of proof whatever they want it to be. And they have and will to differing degrees all the time. Everything that comes up, they create a new standard. It's so arbitrary. It's it's a mess. Every one of these things is a mess. What I want to know is why don't they release this stuff? Wouldn't that help them? Wouldn't this? They help? did release like a well, ninety the Wells page report. finding, right? The Wells and report. today they released like a ninety page document. Okay, because I know they're saying Tom Brady's agent is saying that Tom cooperated. He gave an quote unprecedented amount of electronic data, all of which is incontrovertible. Like if if all of this exists, why not just show it to all the people? If if every all the evidence existed, or whatever evidence existed in the Saints uh, case existed, why not release it? Why keep that stuff hidden and make yourself look like you're kind of doing this stuff arbitrarily? I don't I don't understand the lack of well because they do do it arbitrarily, so I don't think there's any way they can prove they don't. Right. Um, there's also been a lot of talk. I guess Stephen A. Smith said that Brady smashed his cell phone, and everyone spent all day saying. Stephen A. Smith is an idiot, and then the main piece of evidence in the 90-page document today or whatever is them going on and on about Tom Brady smashing a cell phone, and he told them he always smashes a cell phone when he gets a new one. Um, the timing of it seems strange. Right. It's like it's the same day he met with the Wells people or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if they wanted to come down and say they're upholding it just because of the way he obstructed what they tried to do... I, I would, think that's what they're saying. Uh, yeah, I, I would have more... They're saying that. Okay. I, I kind of agree with that then. Uh, but there's no – again, like that next year they can say this guy didn't cooperate with us, so we're suspending him for eight games. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I, they I don't have know no rules. You... They're just completely arbitrary. Um, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, Brady's suspension is upheld. Uh, as they say on the internet, there will be lawyers. There's going to be more. It's right. not over by any means. Um, and then – yeah, if I'm Brady, I try to get into the legal system, have this pushed off for a year, play one more year, and then just retire. Quit. Yeah, call it call it his career. Five minutes after they released this was the news that Le'Veon Bell, like I said, uh, his suspension is reduced from three to two. I will have to ask Michael Fabiano what he thinks about uh, Le'Veon Bell. That's drug-related, though, right? Yes. That's from last well, year. No, that's personal conduct-related. Oh, okay. I don't okay. think he failed a drug test. I think he got pulled over in a car with drugs in it. Right. That's the same, the LeGarrette Blunt thing, right? Right. All right. Boy, did that move slow. That took forever. Right. So he's going to be out two games, and they've agreed on that. I don't think that's going any further. Right. I think he's yeah. sitting out two games, and then he'll be back week three. Uh, and there's been some reports that maybe... His knee is not 100% yet anyway. Another piece of news from the NFL today, speaking of knees, is that Todd Gurley passed his physical and is not going to start the preseason on the PUP for the Rams. He's ready to go tomorrow, allegedly. Uh, I don't. He may be having an Adrian Peterson-like recovery from the knee, uh, but it's interesting to watch for fans of the Rams, fans of the NFC West, and fantasy players. Um, they drafted him like 14th overall. Yeah. Um, and they didn't do that because they thought uh, he wasn't a huge impact at his position. Yeah, I admittedly know nothing about him other than what I've read related to fantasy, and it sounds like he's 
looks like an amazing prospect. He was an absolute game changer in college. Yep. 90 yard plus runs every week. Um, so keep an eye on that. Uh, the Saints, uh, uh, they we talked about one of my one last things yep. uh, in the last month or so is about the headache that was Junior Gallat, and the Saints decided to wash their hands of it, which is easy to support. Unfortunately, it's not without consequence, right? Because he was good. Uh, you know, it's going to be a player that had ten sacks last year that's not there, and also a guy who's going to cost five million dollars on this year's cap and twelve million on next year's. Um, and this is obviously not a team with all kinds of cap. Room. Even if they cut him, the NFL cap is the most confusing cap in yeah. all sports. They uh, they they filed or signed two really bad contracts last summer in Glut and Graham. Now are they hit with all that cap money still because of guaranteed signing bonuses or something? I, I just it's I don't, above my head. Yeah, I don't know how the, the cap- bottom line is is they have to pay five million in dead money to Glut this year and twelve million next year. Brutal. So. That's a bummer. This is a really big year for Breeze, for Peyton, for Loomis, and for the future of the team. Um, and I'm not really sure how good or how not good they are. I don't know. Um, so we'll have to see. I felt like that last year while they weren't good. Because that division wasn't good, I always thought that like just one of these weeks they'll turn it on. Like They're too good at quarterback and just didn't happen. So, I mean, I could easily see it happen this year, though. Uh. This is also trade deadline week in baseball, the 31st. Obviously, there's trades after, but the players have to clear waivers right. for those trades. They don't have to. And we're off to what is a wild start already, and it could be one of the craziest and best trade deadlines that baseball's had in a long time. Jeff Paston and I talked about it last week on the show. You'll hear Joe Poznanski and I talk about it a bit today. Uh, last night came the news that Troy Tulaluski uh, was traded by the Rockies to the Blue Jays for Reyes and some prospects. Um, the thought is that the Rockies are going to try to build up Reyes and Coors Field throughout the course of the rest of the season uh, and then try to dump them in the offseason, but they could flip him earlier. Uh, one thing's for sure, he only had two years left on his deal. Two had five. Yeah. So they'll get out of the... One was 18, one was 20, something like that. Uh, Cole Hamels pitched a no-hitter over the weekend in what might have been his last start with the Phillies. Uh, I read today that the Phillies have put a deadline on offers for him. I would think he'd get moved. And the Royals have already traded for two guys um, to improve their team. And it seems like they're kind of going all-in for this year because next year already starts... uh, this thing that always happens to these teams where now their star is due. So will they pay oh, him? Okay. I think Alex Gordon is first up. So I think they're going hard uh, before they get to that. Last thing I want to touch on and three things today was I just wanted to make sure that ESPN knew that we know that they're giant hypocrites. And the thing is, is Colin Cowherd was fired by them this week, I guess. Okay. Um, did you hear these comments he made about the Dominican Republic in relation to the complexity no, I, of baseball? I saw that that's what it was about, but I did not see the actual comments. Yeah, I don't know. They were stupid, probably. They weren't as malicious as ESPN wants you to think they were, probably, after the fact. He basically said something like, baseball is not that complicated, and if it was, 
there wouldn't be so many people from the Dominican Republic <laughs> good at it. Okay. Which, it's a bad take. Especially in 2015. He tried to explain what he meant. Right. And I kind of understood. And he had stats. It was like, there's 126 countries ranked in education. They're and under education. Dominican right, Republic right. is like 122. Okay. Yet they're great at baseball. Right. So I kind of see where he was going. Just not the most PC now, way to ESPN put it. ESPN jumped on it. And they said, oh, we do not allow those things at ESPN. You're gone. Which is nuts because they allowed Stephen A. Smith to basically victim blame women for being raped because they wear short skirts. Well, but here's the thing. They have an investment in Stephen A. Smith going forward. Colin Coward and ESPN announced a few weeks before this that they're parting ways. Oh. And even more, Colin Coward announced he's going to Fox Sports, their direct competitor. So they didn't want so him. So to- it was a perfect <laughs> opportunity to kick him out and sully his reputation a bit. Yeah. He's made comments like this or near this for years. He's always sort of – his John Wall stuff is always brushing up uh, the border of racism. He's always been questioned. They keep him around. Now, the second they're ready to part ways and he's going somewhere else and they see that he – they have an out and a way to blacken his reputation, they jumped on it. Right. And I get it. Just don't let them fool you into thinking that they did it because they wanted to take a moral stand for the people of the Dominican Republic. That was not the case. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Especially, like I said, the stuff that Stephen A. Smith has put out there, Skip Bayless, whoever else. I mean, just controversy is what they live on, so – well, that's three things for today. How do you think this Brady thing is going to end in the end? You think he misses the first four games of the NFL season? Is that that? Or do you have a different prediction for how this Boy, all shakes out? I mean, if you had, if you asked me before today, I would have said what I said. Uh, he's going to appeal it for a year, no matter what happens, play out this season. And he'll be, what, 38, 39, something like that? And then he'll just retire. He'll retire as one of the best ever. Uh it's not just a Buffalo thing. I think they're fairly hated, and I think there's a lot of people out there that want to put asterisks next to their titles for whatever they – I mean, Deflategate, Spygate, whatever. Uh, but he's one of the best ever, and I, that, that's what I would do if I were him. You know, Just get get it to legal appeals and then ride it out and call it, call it quits, call it a career. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Joe Poznanski. Our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of UNC Charlotte. He's been the lead writer for Sports on Earth website and a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. But today he's a national columnist for NBC Sports. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today, uh, mostly to give his long-awaited iPad review. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Joe Poznanski. How are you doing today, Mr. Poznanski? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. I just realized the um, kind of interesting parallel that uh, we had Jeff Passan on last week, who was a... uh, Cleveland guy who uh, really made a name for himself in Kansas City, and you were also a Cleveland guy who spent a lot of time writing in Kansas City. We, we, we worked together in Kansas City. I uh, remember very clearly when Jeff was uh, was hired, and uh, he obviously did great work, and uh doing fantastic work for, for Yahoo now. Yeah. Um, 
I just thought that was kind of interesting. I never realized that before. Uh, you know, it's interesting because when I was thinking about this book, uh, the new book, The Secret of Golf, the story of uh, Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas, I was telling some of the people in the book club this. You know, the last book that you wrote obviously was such a, I don't know, once in a, <laughs> once in a lifetime. I can't imagine that happening twice with, you know, being embedded in Penn State and everything that went on there and then getting the book out and then having to almost kind of defend the book in a way. Um, it's got to just be such a different feeling around promoting this one this time, I'd assume. Well, it's just a different feeling in general. I mean, I, I think every book, uh, this is my fourth book and everyone has a, has a different vibe and a different feel and, and you're, you know, you're promoting it to different audiences and all that. Obviously, uh, uh, what Paterno was, was, uh, you know, something extremely unusual and, and something that, uh, you know, involved, uh, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of different, uh, different, uh, you know, ways of explaining what the book was. And, and, uh, you know, there was defending of the book. There was also plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of kudos and, and, and good things that came, you know, the immediate aftermath, including it you know, going to number one on the, on the Times bestseller list. I mean, there was, there was a lot, uh, with that book that is, that was very unusual. And, uh, you know, this book is, is much more, uh, you know, like the first couple of books that I did, uh, where, you know, it's, uh, it's a, hopefully, a you know, people will find it to be a fun, a fun book to read, a fun little book. It's not, uh, you know, it's not out there to try to break news or, or, uh, or anything like that. It's, it's more just, uh, Hopefully, a story people will really uh, will really uh, you know feel a part of. Was that at all intentional? Like, did you say, "All right, for this next book, I have to do something that just is a little"? I don't, I don't want to say safer. I don't mean that, but a no, little... no. I sure. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I, it wasn't. It wasn't intentional. Um, you know, I, obviously, I did have to think pretty hard about what I wanted my next book to be. You know, look, when I went to go do the Joe Paterno book, it was obviously a very different book than what it, what it turned out being. Um, you know, I went to write about the life of, uh, of, uh, you know, one of the most successful, if not the most successful college football coach who ever lived. And, and, uh, you know, and that is the story I ended up writing, but obviously as, as, you know, the ending, you know, changed so dramatically and, and his, his death, uh, you know, in the middle of me writing the book just, you know, obviously had a huge, huge impact on, on how that book, uh, how that book was shaped and formed. Although I, you know, I still feel like I wrote the book. I went, uh, you know, I went there to write, um, you know, so this one was, was a little bit different. It was, you know, the idea for me built up for my, uh, long relationship, uh, writing relationship with Tom Watson. Um, he was somebody I've been writing about since Kansas city, as, as you mentioned earlier, I, I got to really know Tom, uh, 20 years ago when I, when I was the columnist of the Kansas city star and started there and started writing, uh, about him at, at some, you know, great lengths. And I've always been fascinated by his story and always, you know, wanted to find a good way to tell that story. And, you know, came up with this idea of really building it around his relationship with Jack Nicholas and their great rivalry and friendship. And so, uh, you know, uh, every every book has its own sort of, you know, I guess origin tale within the writer. Um, I wasn't really thinking about, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go with something a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more 
a little lighter, a little more fun. It wasn't it wasn't like that. Um, it was just sort of it felt like the right next book, and right. and uh, you know it, it it still does. It still feels like the right next book. You kind of mentioned in the book about how you were a little bit concerned that Watson might not be interested in the idea of the project because of a conversation you had previously, and you mentioned a little anecdote about getting just kind of a small postcard and um, him kind of saying, you know, I'd be glad to help anyway. Uh, what, can you kind of talk about what kind of relief that was and, and how important it w- it is when you write a book to kind of have that level of cooperation as opposed to, you know, what would have come of, of the project if your initial uh, thoughts were correct? Well, I wouldn't have written the book otherwise. Uh, you, you know, exactly right. You know, Tom, uh, unlike just about every golfer of his stature, almost every any individual athlete of his stature, um, never had a book written about him, never had a book that he wrote. I mean, he wrote some, some golf instruction stuff, but he never wrote a biography or an autobiography, uh, never commissioned one, never had one written about him. Um, and so I did years ago, I, and, and it wasn't even something I necessarily wanted to do myself. I was just kind of curious. And he made it very clear to me he never wanted one, that he's a very private guy. And uh, uh, so, you know, I, so I put that away. I just kind of thought I, I have no interest in writing um, some sort of, you know, guerrilla book about Watson. I mean, that just wasn't wasn't my interest. My interest is really telling his story. And I came up with this idea of telling the story through his relationship with, with Nicholas. And um, I, as, as you mentioned, I, mean, I wrote him a, a letter and, and just explained what my idea was and, and made it very clear, hey, if, if you don't want to participate in this book, I'm not going to write it. I mean, it just, it, it, I, I didn't feel like I could get, um, you know, inside enough to, to write the books the way I wanted to unless he was willing to, um, you know, be a part of it, in, in, even in a small way. And, uh, and I didn't think he would. I honestly thought he was going to say, uh, you know what, no, it's not the right time, I don't want to do it. And I would have gone on to something else. I would have written a different book. It wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have written this one. But as it turned out, he, he was very kind and, and and as you say, sent me this little postcard that I was you know felt sure was a complete uh, blow off uh, little thing. But as it turned out, it said uh, have to help you any way I can. And and he was right. I mean, he 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 is a, a man who is true to his word, and uh, he gave me you know a tremendous amount of time and access. And uh, you know, this is very blunt and honest as he usually is. And you know, that was that. Like I said, I don't think the book could have been written without any of that. When I was uh, when I was reading that story, I was thinking kind of of getting uh, uh, waiting back to hear from a college and, and thinking like, oh no, that envelope is just not big enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My <laughs> wife brought it upstairs and said that is the uh, that is the shortest rejection letter that anybody's ever written. I mean, she just was a, we just should, it was just a little po- little postcard. So we were sure, uh, and that was and honestly that was sort of what I expected. I he he surprised me um, by by being willing to do that and and. Uh, you know, I, I'm very appreciative of it because uh, you know it gave me an opportunity to tell this story that I really had wanted to tell, wanted to tell for a long time, and uh, and because he gave me that that uh, that access and time, uh, it led Jack Nicholas to also give me you know similar access and time, and and uh, because of his great respect for Tom, so you know they, he he basically put this book into motion with that. With that, uh, with that time, and, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm grateful to him, uh, and uh, like I say, I, I just 
loved writing this book. It was, it's one of, uh, you know, they've all been really, to be honest, they've all been fantastic experiences, but uh, this one was a little bit different just because it was something I'd been thinking about for a very long time. I really like kind of the unique structure of the book, the way that it kind of starts, you know, on the range, so to speak, uh, kind of, and then builds its way through the holes. And then also in between, there's all these different secrets from uh, Nicholas and from and from Watson. And I, I kind of had this moment where I was kind of reading them and I was talking to my brother, who's a big golfer about it. And uh, it's like, you know, all these all these secrets of golf, they just seem so simple. And yet, yeah. And that, and then yet, when you try to implement them, they couldn't be sometimes any more difficult. Yeah, it's, it's to me, it's one of the cool aspects of the game. Is that I mean, really, what you're asking yourself to do is very simple from a you know, if if you just explain it, um, but it's very hard to actually do. And and I think uh, I think that's what draws me, you know, draws me to the game as a writer is that there is sort of this almost zen-like thing that's going on there. It's, uh, you know, you're basically asking yourself to repeat something that you've done, you know, in, in the case of a Tom Watson, millions of times, swing the golf club, uh, but you have to do it under duress and under pressure and under a different, you know, the ball, the, the lie is different and the, the trees are different and the holes are different and the weather is different. And so you sort of have to just adjust to everything. I, I just think that's very cool and, um, you know, when I think of each book that I've written, um, you know, the first book I wrote was this was this lifelong, uh, you know, this life of, of Buck O'Neill, this great Negro Leagues player and manager, who we, and us traveling the country together. Uh, so it was like a little bit of a travel type of thing. The second book I wrote, of course, was about the 75 Reds and sort of a, a travel through that whole season. Um, the third book um, that I wrote uh, was uh, Turno, and then this one, and I came into this thing thinking, okay, well, what do I want this to feel like for the reader in, in the same way that, that those other books, you know, I wanted, in, with, with the first book I wrote, I wanted it to feel like um, you're traveling with, with, with Buck O'Neill, you know, around the, the country. And in the Reds book, I wanted it to feel like you were there in the in the dugout with Pete Rose screaming at uh, at, at the Reds while uh, while they were losing, you know, Game Seven of the World Series. And so this one, I really wanted it to feel like you were walking with Watson and Nicholas. You know, I broke it up into eighteen holes. I, I include all of these little tips and secrets that uh, that these two you know guys uh, um, you know believe in deeply. And um, and I wanted it to feel that way. And I and you know, the, the, one of the one of the cool aspects of this book coming out is that I've heard from from a lot of people who who feel like that's exactly how it, how it was for them, and and that's that's very cool. You know, it's very cool when you can kind of come up with an idea and and hope hope to sort of you know make the words lift off the page a little bit for them uh, and and make it feel like it's a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit different than just sitting there and reading a book that there's there's a there's sort of a physical thing that happens. So so that was the effort. That was certainly what I was trying to do. Yeah, it's kinda of like this idea that we all do with our buddies where it's like, okay, pick any foursome you could have and if sure. if maybe your foursome includes uh Nicholas and Watson, you might not get that, but this book has an opportunity to kinda uh feel what it's feel what it could be like. And and I laughed a couple times like uh I, I pictured myself walking out there and, and saying to Watson, so 
how do you deal with the pressure and then him throwing back at me? Well, if you don't, I mean, I, I don't want to get it wrong because it's it's perfect. He goes, if you don't feel pressure, you won't feel pressure. Right. It's like, oh, right. okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now there is there's there's some and that's uh, there's sort of this 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 Yoda like quality to uh, to some of the things that those guys were saying, you know, and they're just like, all right, well. That makes sense only if you want it to make sense, you know. But uh, but that's golf. I mean, that's that's the that's the really cool thing about golf. Obviously, when you when you go to a golf instructor, they can they can show you how to grip the club and they can show you how to how to you know hit your irons and hit your hit your woods and hit your driver, how to putt, how to chip. They can show you all of those things. But for you to be able to do those on a consistent basis, uh, do it under pressure, do it you know with a with a you know, with with a two dollar bet on the line, uh, do it over bumpy greens, do it in in the wind. I mean, there, this is a lifelong pursuit for so many people, and and there are there are things that you that you can only sort of transmit to to people through these through these cool little secrets. I think that uh, that uh, you know Watson and Nicholas uh, you know talk about in the book. Yeah, and you know you do a great job in the book too. You know. It feels as you read it that it's more about Watson in a sense and that you use Nicholas as a way to kind of uh, learn about Watson. And you learn a lot about what's similar about them and different. And one thing that they were very similar about, and it it got me thinking about all athletes that play at a high level, was there's one point where they talk about – where you talk about the idea of uh, playing well when you're not playing well. And they both had quotes that were almost exactly similar. And they reminded me of quotes I feel like I've heard – after almost every no hitter or perfect game, where it seems like every time the pitcher's like, "Yeah, you know, I just didn't have my stuff in the uh, in the bullpen today," um, right? You know, it seems like you, you hear that every time, or or after um, you know a clutch World Series performance too, you'll hear pitchers say, uh, "Yeah, you know, I didn't have my best stuff today, but I battled through it." And it, it's this idea uh, that that is so foreign, I think, to someone who who finds challenges in the game that sometimes these top elite guys just don't see. But I thought it was really interesting how on that point they were very much alike. Yeah, well, and, and I think both of them said, um, you know, that they won, you know, in, in Nicholas's case, I think he said something like 12. I can't 12 remember out of 18, exact number, he said, yeah. 12 or 13 mm-hmm. of yeah. his major championships. He won when he didn't feel like he was playing very well. Uh, and Watson... Uh, Watson, you know, his most famous victory, you know, is either the duel of the sun uh, at Turnberry in 77 where he was playing out of his mind, or it was the 82 U.S. Open when he chipped in when he was playing horribly. I mean, he that was one tournament he went into believing fully he had no chance to win it because of the way he was playing, and and he, you know, just sort of sort of carved out a, you know, a couple of par rounds out of out of nothing, out of thin air. Um, and then, and then found you know found something on the range and, and had a great weekend. And, yeah, that's what these guys kind of feel like they have to do. That's sort of certainly what Tiger Woods did, for instance. I mean, Tiger Woods would win championships uh, with his B B minus C plus game, and he would do it because he was you know fantastic and so much better than other people. But it was, but it was also because he had this this incredible mental uh, toughness. And this deep, deep belief that he was destined to win these tournaments, and there was, you know, that was the that was the Nicholas uh, way as well. Is that those guys didn't have to feel like they were at their best. And you, you know, you're right; it's almost inevitable 
people will will say um you know that they that they during shoot around they didn't miss a single shot uh, but then they go into a game and and uh, and Four for nothing 20. good happens. Yeah. Or yeah. they have a great bullpen session and they go into the game and they get rocked in the first inning. And it's it's because you know how you feel and 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 how you how you are. You know th- those sorts of things are important uh, to like to impress people or whatever. But to actually win and play it at the highest level. It takes. It, it doesn't. It's not just. Hey, I got my good stuff today. It's. It's so much more about about you know the mental drive and energy and force uh, of making the right pitch every time and 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 you know being able to to you know figure out how to get out of your mistakes and and uh, you know no no sport I think better describes that than golf. Yeah, you know, and uh, I couldn't help. It was right when I started reading the book. Was also Open Weekend. Uh, the British Open weekend, and I couldn't help but think of some of the things that the guys were saying in the book, uh, Jack and and Tom, and then seeing those things uh, out on the course and and thinking about some of them, either whether it was Tiger Woods and and just how much he's fought his swing the last few years and how much he's changed and how complicated it seems that it might be, and then reading some of the quotes in there about swing and and how both guys just like you know they have to be so simple and then watching Jordan Spieth and and just the rhythm that he's been in and how sometimes you feel like he's almost rushing sometimes it feels like he can go up and and hit so quick and you feel like it's just a guy who's in a really um a really a simple moment maybe in in his game and and I just wonder if you've been thinking about that um the so, things that you learn in the book much and, so. yeah hey, go ahead no very much so yeah that's i mean that's that's uh you know i had both of those thoughts i mean with 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 Tiger, you know, it's it's funny. I've I've had this uh, sort of long-standing belief that goes back five or six years that he was never he was not going to catch Nicholas. And I wrote it, you know, first time probably a few months after he came back after the scandals in in two thousand nine two thousand ten. Uh, I wrote it. I just I, it was it was very specifically. I was thinking of Tom Watson. I was thinking that when when it went away for Tom Watson, when it stopped, um, what you find is every time you feel like you're getting something, um, you run into a, a hurdle. You run into a wall. You run into something, and you can get your game back for a little bit. Tiger certainly played very very well a couple of years ago, but it it, it never comes all the way back, and then your body breaks down, or then your swing. You feel like you need a swing change, and and there's just so much about this about this very very simple game that is complicated. And the harder uh, you try to fix those mistakes, the more complicated it becomes. That's that's why you know anytime you're fighting your swing, even that even that phrase fighting your swing sort of gives you an indication of of uh, of, of just how hard it is to come back. And then you have a guy like Jordan Spieth. You know he. He did not play well at the Open Championship. He five putt, he three putted five right. times, Battled four it. putted once. Um, if he's putting the way he normally puts, just the way he normally puts, he wins by five shots. I mean, he was not playing well, but perfect example of how you put yourself in position to win, even when you're not playing well. But what he did was was really incredible. I mean, he was there, you know, on the on the seventeenth tee, tied for the lead on on Sunday. When he had, you know, and he'd gotten some bad breaks and all kinds of things, but I thought in some ways 
him almost winning that golf tournament or almost getting into the playoff, falling one shot short of that, is to me every bit as impressive as what he did at the U.S. Open. And you know, maybe not quite as impressive as blowing away the field at the Masters, but it's in that same realm. I, I just walk away thinking this is a guy who is exactly like you say. He's just kind of in tune with the game. It's simple for him. It's not hard. It's not, you know, he, he makes mistakes. Uh, he'll, he'll double bogey a hole and then, and then he'll birdie the next two because there's, he's just not fighting anything. And that's how Tiger was at his best. Uh, there were no doubts. There were no, there was no point that you thought, uh, well, this isn't going to go well. It, it all, it all was just going to add up to victory at the end of the day. And, uh, now it could not be more different. And, and I don't know. How do you get that back? I don't know that you do get that back. Once once you start down that that hill and you're just fighting and climbing to get back up it, um, the, the game is not very forgiving. I mean, I think anybody who's who's played it and gone into a gone into a slump uh, understands. Uh, boy, it's hard to get out. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've always thought that, and I still think that he might have that one weekend sometime, like sort of like Nicholas did in '86. You know, sure. uh, winning that one, or even like Watson was it two thousand nine when he lost the playoff. Um, I hope he has. I hope he has more than one. I mean, yeah. I really do. I still, really hope he has youngish. three or four of those moments, and I right. hope they're at the right time and the right place. And that's the other thing: if he has that moment, but it's at the Greenbrier Classic, it's just not that big a deal. I mean, right. it's great, and everybody will like, oh, yeah, he's back and, and whatever. But what made it so special for Jack was who was at Augusta. You know, that's, you know, his place, his, his golf tournament. Obviously he has a better chance of, of it being there because, uh, because he under, you know, he knew the golf course and knows the golf course better than anybody. Uh, and also because he didn't play that many other tournaments, you know, so it, it was going to be something major like that. But that's the thing about it. You don't really know, you know, Tom Watson had, sort of a great moment when he was 48 years old he won colonial um and at the time he was one of the oldest guys to win i mean he still is one of the oldest guys to win a pga tour event and it was magical and fantastic and that there's a lot of history at that golf course but it wasn't augusta you know it wasn't it wasn't the british open it wasn't the u.s open it wasn't even the pga or or even the players championship it was that was the week it happened for him and that's the thing that i think about with tiger is he's it, yes, everybody wants him at that moment. Augusta seems the most likely place for him to have it, but you don't get to choose what week. What week things sort of work out and come right. together, and and uh, so I hope he has several. I hope he has several several weeks left in his in his career where he shows up, uh, you know, works his way through the bad round that's inevitable, um, and and you know plays two or three other fantastic rounds and puts himself in position to win on Sunday, it would be it would be pretty magical. The book is called The Secret of Golf, The Story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas. It's by Joe Piznanski. You can uh, get it obviously at bookstores and it's available in e formats as well. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Piznanski. You can go to Joe Piz- JoePiznanski.com, not Jay. Jay Piznanski on Twitter, JoePiznanski.com. Uh, there's a link to his blog there, which is one of the best on the internet. doesn't look like we're going to have time to talk about your thoughts on the iPad, but really quickly, before I let you go, what did you think of the Tulo trade, and what do you think about this trade deadline as compared to the previous uh, few? Um, well, there's a, lot, there's a lot of buzz at this yeah. trade deadline. I mean, I, there, have been some, there have been some duds in the last few years. Obviously, 
the Chulo trade uh, makes very little sense to me right now. Um, you know, I've not, I've not, you know, really gotten a, a good feel for what Colorado or Toronto wanted to get out of that deal exactly. Um, but you know, but I mean, he's a great player going to a team that scores a bunch of runs. So you know, maybe. Maybe they, you know, they view themselves. Maybe they, you know, maybe they're going to get pitching before this trade deadline's up. Right. The, the one that was really interested me the most so far, you know, for for obvious reasons, being a Kansas City guy, was seeing uh, Cueto go to the Royals uh, in exchange for some some pretty good young pitching. And you know, that's the Royals had always said, "Hey, if we're ever in position to win, we're gonna we're gonna go all out to get it." And Sure enough, they they really are, and and uh, you know they got the best record in the American League. I think they have the biggest lead uh, as we're talking of any team in baseball. Uh, so they went out and got Cueto, not really needing him, I think, to to bring it home, but needing him for the playoffs and 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 taking a real shot at the World Series. And I think that's for for fans that have have dealt with so much losing and so much agony over the years. Uh, for those fans to see what the Royals have become, and now to see uh, a team that is that is willing to absolutely go all out to win uh, this year, I think that's got to feel good. It, it might the trade could absolutely backfire on them. Uh, Cueto could you know not be so great in the in the playoffs, I and mean, that right. happened you know to John Lester last year where he was not that great in the one game he pitched, and they're out. So that could happen. Uh, Brandon Finnegan or one of those young prospects they traded away could develop into a terrific, terrific player. I actually just did a piece on uh, the ten most lopsided trades in baseball history, um, which will which will be up over at NBC Sports. Um, and uh, one of those trades was the was the Doyle Alexander for John Smoltz trade that Detroit made, which is almost exactly the same as this one, where Detroit said, "Hey, we want to try to win the World Series. Uh, the window's open." And they traded a, a, a young double A pitcher uh, with some you know real talent and and uh, wildness. And John Smoltz you know pitches his way to the Hall of Fame. And Doyle Alexander is terrible in the playoffs, and and it's a bust. It's one of the worst trades ever. So you know the chances you take, but I think if you're a Royals fan, you have to keep very very excited that that this is a team going for it. One thing I want to mention too is just that. Um... Uh, Zach Greinke is one of the most interesting players maybe in the history of baseball, and nobody writes about him better uh, than our guest, Joe Piznanski, and he has a really recent piece on both NBCSports.com, which you should absolutely check out, and then goes into a little bit more detail about it on the blog as well. I really enjoyed both of those things. I mean, just the the, the, the yeah the trajectory of his career, and, and even some, I just read the um, the Dodgers book that, uh, that Molly uh, Knight wrote, and Excellent. It, yeah. yeah, it's so good. And there's some really interesting things uh, about Greinke in there as well. Kind of, I can just picture him uh, throwing Puig's uh, bag out of the uh, bus and and saying, "All right, we're ready to go." But uh, I just wanted to to mention those pieces as well. Again, the book is "The Secret of Golf: The Story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas." It's his third time on the show. Uh, can't thank you enough. This is the guy, by the way, with the best assistant uh, that we have ever dealt with. Uh, Jennifer, just the nicest. A kindest person who's helped us uh, all three times. She's great. Joe's been on the show the best. I want to give her a shout out. Jay Puznanski on Twitter, JoePuznanski.com. Anything else you want to mention, uh, plug wise, about what to read or where to read it or anything like that? 
No, I think it's over at NBC Sports, and you've got the plug-in about how great uh, my assistant Jennifer is. So yeah. that's really all I need. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing it in the third time. We really appreciate it. Hope that uh, hope we gave you something different to talk about. I know you've been everywhere with this book, so um, I no, really enjoyed great. it. Thank you. Great. We'll do that. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right, I want to thank Joe Poznanski for being on the podcast. It's always great to have him on. He's one of the best writers of all time, sports writers of all time. So it's always great to have him part of the show. Uh, he was on mostly to talk about his book, The Secret of Golf, the story of top Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas. And uh, I won't go into that too much here in this part of uh, the book club today because you can just listen to a few minutes before here and we did sure. 30 minutes on it. Uh, but it will be a part of the book club for the rest of the month, um, so we'll keep uh, working it the way we do the other books. Um, real quick thing about the book club book of the year. I was kind of thinking about this, and I'm wondering if uh, Console War should be the book of the year. I didn't give it enough consideration because I was thinking to myself, well, we just had him on. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have him back. Right. But then I was also thinking like, well, do we need to? Can't we just say that was the book of the year and you can listen to already two interviews from him on it? And we will probably have him back when, when the, the documentary, documentary comes out. out. I don't know. That might be my choice. We'll have to talk about that more. Um, and then this last piece of news on the book club. Uh, Jeff Perlman does a thing called the Quaz on his website, which is uh, this question and answer thing that he does with pretty much anyone and any- everyone and anyone. And, you know, various weeks on various levels of hurt or disappointed that he's never asked me. Like when he just had someone's grandma on. It's like, well, why couldn't he have us on? But <laughs> he hasn't asked. So uh, last week, though, he did have Molly Knight on, who is a girl from Los Angeles, Stanford grad. Um, went to Stanford for pre-med. Didn't like chemistry. Took her degree moved to New York, became a bartender, learned how to write, got hired by ESPN, uh, and has just published her first book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse. I have no idea, but I was super into this book, and I read it in like three days. Sweet. I just, I really, I was just really into it. Maybe because I just went to Dodger Stadium last summer. Uh, Maybe because they have a lot of just interesting characters on the team, like, Yasiel Puig and uh, Matt Kemp, who's not on the team anymore, but wasn't during the part of the. And Matt Kemp is someone we like. We talked. Uh, I think we got SL Price on the first time ever because of a Sports Illustrated cover story he did on Matt Kemp, and like how he was looked at as this like kind of savior for baseball in the African American communities. You know, this guy playing in Los Angeles who was dating Rihanna. You know, and then he just wasn't. He just got hurt all the time and broke up with Rihanna, I think, and got traded to San Diego. Yeah. Um, and then there's Zach Greinke, who's maybe the most interesting person in all of baseball. Uh, and and there was buzz about this book. Like I'd hear things like, there's this new Dodger book where they talk about Zach Greinke throwing Yasiel Puig's stuff off the bus and in the middle of the street because he was being an idiot. And I was like, I want to read that. But then I didn't really know what it was. And I heard about it in the Quaz. And then I wrote to someone at Simon & Schuster. 
and they sent me two copies. Uh, so I do have one to give away of that. I already gave away the uh, best, um, the uh, Secret of Golf book from a guy. We should just mention him now while we're here. Um, a really nice guy who touched base with me over the weekend. Uh, I'm having trouble finding his email because this. Uh, give me a period. Bill McGrath um, is a guy from Kentucky, a listener of the show. Uh, really kind to Don and I. Sent a really nice email. And uh, most of the time, that's all it takes. Right. Communicate with us and be nice, and we'll send you stuff. We're easy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes these places send us a lot of books. So. Right. All right. We are going to take a break and come back and talk fantasy football. I'm excited to do it. First time this year with uh, Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network. You can look, but you can't touch. You keep dreaming on the stars above. Our next guest is from Watertown, Connecticut, and is a graduate of Central Connecticut State. He's a member of the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Hall of Fame, uh, and he is the fantasy editor for NFL.com and the NFL Network. He's making his sixth appearance on the show today. Warm sportscasters, welcome to Michael Fabiano. What's going on, Michael? What's up, man? Nice music to intro me <laughs> in. My, uh, my little sister's the Bella Twins. You love the Bellas. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They're uh, they're great wrestlers. They're at the top of their division in 3WE and Divas class, and um, they're better people. So being a Bellas fan, that means you are a let's go Cena, not a Cena sucks, right? <laughs> yeah. I never minded Cena. I think the people who don't like him are the the guys who maybe haven't, been watching wrestling as long as I have. Um, the kids love them. Obviously, the female demographic loves him. I think there's a lot of men who are big John Cena fans. Um, I know a lot of guys, NFL players, who really like the WWE that are fans of John Cena. You even see fans and uh, players sometimes doing that. You can't see me uh, in all sports, right. honestly. And Part of the reason why I have respect for Cena is, man, did you watch Raw on Monday night? Oh, yeah. When he took Mm -hmm. a knee to the face, his nose was crooked like Ben Roethlisberger's a few years ago. He finished the match and ended up beating Seth. Um, That was was one of the reasons why, even though a lot of people don't like him, you have to respect John Cena. Absolutely. And I, I would talk about this a lot more, but people will kill me. Uh, so we have to. <laughs> uh, I could talk wrestling all day. Yeah, man, so but, could I. Yeah. But when you when you've been promising a fantasy discussion and we have 15 minutes, people will crucify me. So uh, we will have to move on for the greater good of the uh, of my livelihood and my life. But uh, mm-hmm. look at this is the time where I am just the most jacked about fantasy football from now until opening kickoff, really, because I love drafts. My favorite thing about it is going to the draft, preparing for the draft, being with everyone at the draft. It's the best. This is the best time. Mm-hmm. And um, the number one thing, this is one of those years where I don't know who the number one pick is. I've been doing a lot of mock drafts. I've done them on Yahoo and ESPN and other places. And like I see who they have. And right? NFL.com. And right? NFL.com. Yep. I just did okay, one on NFL.com sure before we talked. And I'm going to give you a lot of time at the end, too, to talk all about everything about NFL and NFL.com and what you guys are doing this year. I love to hear that too. But um, 
I just don't know who the the right number one guy is this year. Who's your number one guy? It was Adrian Peterson until yesterday. And then when Le'Veon Bell's suspension was uh, decreased down to two games from three, I said, you know what? I lose two games, but this is a kid who averaged almost 18 fantasy points a game last year. Multiply that by 14, assuming he can do that again in 2015. You're getting right around number four uh, overall from the running back position in terms of points. Um, versatility is off the charts. He's young. He doesn't have a whole ton of wear and tear uh, on his frame. As much as I like Adrian Peterson, if there is one downfall with him, it's that he does have a lot of carries on him. Right. But I seriously don't think that's going to affect him because we all know Peterson's a cyborg. He's not like a normal mortal man. But I just think losing two games, you can make it up with your replacement players. You have to really draft for the strategy of having Le'Veon Bell on your team, assuming you get the number one overall pick, or maybe he falls to you at number two, uh, possibly even three, although I don't see that happening. You need to really keep that running back depth uh, in the, the forefront of your mind because you do want to be able to be competitive in those first two weeks without him, and that's going to be a little bit difficult because your number one overall pick, the best player on your fantasy football roster, will be on the sidelines for, for that period of time. But I would rather have Le'Veon Bell for 14 games than just about every other running back for potentially 16 games. We all know the running back position has a chair of injuries. So. Right. Are you monitoring his knee at all early in camp? Oh, sure. Yeah, because yeah. that was a late a late <laughs> injury, right. obviously, yeah. Um, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be anything that's too serious. Right, and people will make a big deal if he starts on PUP, but I think people confuse what start of camp PUP is and what you know starting the season on PUP means. They're two very, right. very if, different things, if, yeah. If you're on the active PUP to enter camp, it's kind of like day-to-day. Right. If you're exactly. on the reserve PUP, well, then there's a good chance you're missing the first six weeks. Now, you have Antonio Brown as the number one wide receiver. You have Le'Veon Bell as the number one um, running back. Do you look at the Steelers as kind of an emerging fantasy offense, like one of these teams where you want a guy as a part of it? Or do you look at them maybe as like a um, a team that just has is real top-heavy? Um, do you look at like a Martavius Bryant as a more attractive uh, player? And when you get to the mid round wide receivers, and we'll talk about wide receivers in a second, because he's a part of this offense, or you just think they just have two really great guys at the top? The Steelers have the opportunity with the talent they have to average 25, 30 points a game. And Ben Roethlisberger said so much um, recently in an interview. They have to need the best running back and the best wide receiver in fantasy football. Artavis Bryant, in limited time last year, remember he missed a lot of time, he looked dynamite. Um, a player that I really think could emerge as a top 20 fantasy wide receiver in 2015. A Clemson guy. We all know Clemson wide receivers lately have been looking pretty good. Uh, I like to look at trends like that. And another thing I think that you want to keep, uh, keep in mind is that that Steelers defense is really young. And they have a lot of new parts. They could be in a lot of shootouts. Right. And fantasy football owners love shootouts because that means fantasy points. So this isn't like the old AFC North where 
There's a lot of defense. I, you know, the Browns have a good defense. Clearly, the Ravens almost always have a pretty good defense. But this isn't your dad's AFC North. This is going to be a division with the Steelers that will be able to put up a lot of points. Mark Trestman in Baltimore, he's going to look to score some points. Uh, Baltimore doesn't have the talent of Pittsburgh. Cincinnati, A.J. Green, healthy, two really good running backs. Even though Andy Dalton's a quarterback, he did have 30-plus touchdowns a couple of years ago. They're going to be able to put some points on the board, too. Um, but Pittsburgh has a chance to be one of the top five offenses in the league. And also remember that Todd Haley's presence there is nothing but good for the wide receivers. When he was in Arizona, well, he had Larry Fitzgerald finish number one in fantasy points at the position twice. Anquan Bolden was always a top 20 wide receiver, uh, and one year I believe he was in the top 10. Haley now, last year in Pittsburgh, Antonio Brown's number one. Martavis Bryant starts to show some flashes. The year before, Brown was in the top 10. So Haley's offenses, uh, especially over the last decade or so, I mean, they've been very conducive to wide receivers putting up some points. You know, I have eight in the league, a uh, 12-team league, so I've been messing around with the eight spot a bit. And um, at first, I was going Brown every time he would last. And it wasn't a lot of times that he would be there at eight. Sometimes, but not a lot of them. Um, and then I would usually go uh, running back, usually then after. But um, I've been kind of playing around with doing running back, running back early because the second-year wide receivers going into this year – are really creating an unbelievable depth at the position. And it's not just the guys that we all know. It's not just the, you know, Cooks and Beckham. OBJ. Right, and Evans. It's not just them. This whole, the top 50, top 60 wide receivers, there's so many, like Landry, for example, in Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been as, I'm not even thinking about sophomore slumps. I'm thinking about, wow, there's an unbelievable depth of second-year wide receivers and guys who are getting an elevated position in their offenses. Like Cooks, I think, moved up a little bit in terms of where he'll be targeted with Graham leaving. And in Philadelphia, um, with Macklin leaving, you got a second-year second wide receiver moving up there. What are your thoughts on all these second-round wide receivers and what they might mean to the position and what they might mean to kind of draft strategy if you've kind of had a feeling that it might shift a little like I did in the example I cited. Well, the position's getting deeper. There's no doubt about that. And we had a lot of rookie wide receivers put up some pretty good numbers. It was a very strange year because that typically doesn't happen. Now, not every one of the wide receivers who played well as rookies are going to thrive in their second season. It's hard for me to pick just one who might be a bust, quote-unquote, because, I mean, Odell Beckham Jr. is another worldly talent. Mike Evans has got size, and I think the lack of a good quarterback last season really hurt him, uh, and he still finished in the top ten in fantasy points. Jordan Matthews has got a great opportunity. Macklin's gone, as you mentioned, so more opportunities for targets uh, in an offense that will throw the football, will run a lot of offensive plays. Uh, Sammy Watkins is, is there, too. Um, I, I think if, if I'm... If I'm leery of any of those second-year wideouts, it's probably going to be Watkins because the quarterback position is, I mean, it's bad. Yeah, it's Buffalo. a, it's a We're talking about mm -hmm. Tyrod Taylor potentially being a starter. I mean, geez, Louise. And you look at Greg Roman's offense, 
I mean, wide receivers, yeah, they don't really thrive in that offense. They, they really don't. And um, there will actually be a column that I wrote on NFL.com either tomorrow or Friday documenting the wide receivers that will be drafted in fantasy leagues on all 32 teams with projections on targets and catches and looking at tendencies of their offensive coordinators. And Greg Roman is someone I look back at, and the wide receivers never really put up huge numbers. Uh, Anquan Bolden was was good with San Francisco. He wasn't putting up elite numbers. Michael Crabtree only had that one that one successful season uh, in San Francisco. And I just don't know if Buffalo has a thousand yard wide receiver this year. And with the with the way that Rex Ryan likes to run the football, and remember during his time with the Jets, there was only one year that his team wasn't at least sixth in rush attempts. I don't know how many opportunities Watkins will have, although he's going to lead his team in targets. I don't know if those opportunities are going to be enough. I don't know if those opportunities are going to be in the red zone enough where he can come in and, and really make a, a pretty significant fantasy impact. But you're right. With those second-year wide receivers, plus Amari Cooper, who everyone loves, uh, I love. He's been, he's been fantastic in OTAs. We'll see how he does in camp. The position is, is certainly getting deeper, and the top of the position is still pretty young. Calvin Johnson's not an old dude. Des Bryant, young guy. Marius Thomas, young Julio guy. Jones, Antonio yeah. Brown, young guy. Julio, Julio Jones, young guy. So um, that position is certainly looking good for the future. Are you leery of any of the rookie wide receivers this year? Do you think people are going to be guilty of remembering how great rookie wide receivers were last year and maybe overrate the rookies this year because of it? Yeah. Yeah. And – I would caution people that last year was an anomaly, at least based on historical data. It didn't happen very often at all. It never happens when you have that many rookie wide receivers making that big of an impact. And this year's class was not as strong as last year's class. Amari Cooper is the the jewel, a guy who reminds a lot of people of Tory Holt, and can make an impact because Derek Carr is, is a pretty good up-and-coming quarterback in the league. But then you look at Kevin White, really talented, big guy, red zone target, in Jay Cutler's uh, stable. And I'm not a huge fan of Cutler in terms of him being a reliable fantasy option. And I, I don't see Kevin White coming out and putting up numbers like, say, Calvin Benjamin did last season. Mm-hmm. And, and then after that, there's some wide receivers that are that are interesting. Some rookies like Rashad Perriman, for sure. Um, he might be Maybe. a good fit the way his quarterback is such a great deep ball thrower. Right. You know, that might right. be that's interesting to me yeah. too. Yeah. Right. Uh maybe Devontae Parker uh as well. Um maybe uh Nelson Aguilar potentially could make an impact in Philadelphia. So um there's some guys that have some some potential for making an impact in the first year, but what happened last year I just don't see it happening. And I, honestly I wouldn't draft anyone but Amari Cooper as more than a number two among the 2015 rookies. Now, with Jimmy Graham moving to Seattle and maybe a little bit of uncertainty of what kind of player he'll be in that offense, is this even more a year where you're either Gronk or you're waiting? As far as yeah. tight end, yeah. No question. Gronk's going to be one of the first 15 to 18 players picked. Yeah, I've seen him at maybe four. Maybe he lose a but, little bit know. of his luster because Tom Brady's going to be out four games at least. That's what we think right now. I don't know what's going to happen with this lawsuit. But uh, I'm not a lawyer. They don't pay me that much money <laughs> to know that stuff. So I'm just going to kind of watch the news like everyone else. And 
he'll be gone by the second round at the very latest. And then Graham will probably be drafted in the fourth or fifth round, depending on the size of your league. After that, I like Greg Olson. I really do. Thousand-yard guy. Uh, he's always going to give you five, six touchdowns. It's pretty good among tight ends. Travis Kelsey's got a little upside to him for sure. Yeah, people um, love him. Was the was the best receiver in Kansas City last year? Remember, they didn't have a wideout who scored a touchdown, which is Nuts. unreal when yeah. you think about it. Nuts. Martellus Bennett, he's in the top five. Had a good year. I don't expect him to duplicate that, but he should still be involved in the offense. And after that, you just got a cavalcade of guys that are upside, late round picks, or veterans who are on the decline but might still help you, like Keith Miller, Jason Witten, guys like that. Julius Thomas, I think his value is really sunk because a lot of his fantasy point production in the last two years has come uh, as a touchdown dependent player. And now, listen, he had 24 touchdowns in two years in Denver uh, in 2013-14. And boy, now, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't have six in 2015 because that offense doesn't get into the red zone. So, you're right. If you don't get Gronk, uh, if you don't get Graham, I'd say you probably wait until after round five to get Olsen, Kelsey, or Bennett. And Bennett's probably not going to go until after round eight. You're going to see a lot of tight ends drafted in the 10th round and beyond who are going to end up being starters on fantasy teams to start the year. You can never have enough running backs in fantasy football, obviously. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked a little bit about the guys at the top. And, you know, there's a lot of good ones at the top. And if you're one of the five or six teams that gets one of those guys, maybe you lay out a bit uh, and get some running backs and come back in later. But there is a point, it feels like, in the running backs where you get to maybe on your – I think you have have Jonathan Stewart at 17. So let's say around there, maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit later than that. Maybe we'll put it at Ellington at 19 where – I get to be not as into the names as into trying to find a guy that sometimes I can be too cute about this, but I like to maybe try to find a guy that can be the next um, you know, C.J. Anderson. I, I don't know, just to pick a name out of at the top of my head. But sure, sure. Uh, I'm thinking about I really liked uh, the kid in Detroit, Abdullah. You know, um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to outsmart everyone and pretend like I know what's going to happen in Atlanta and Dallas. You know, I'd rather go there than some of the names. Who are the guys you like if you're thinking this way? Or maybe you're telling me I'm crazy and it's I should like the names a little bit more. You could potentially hit a home run. That's what I want to do, yeah. Mm-hmm. With Abdullah, for example, with Duke Johnson, um, with Joe Randall, right? But if you don't, I mean, you're going to have to keep tabs on the waiver wire and hope that you land someone like a Justin Forsett last year or, as you mentioned, T.J. Anderson. So there is a strategy there where you potentially go with maybe Andrew Luck in round one or Aaron Rodgers, then you take Gronk in round two, maybe an elite wide receiver. I don't think Gronk will be on the board in round two, but maybe a Demarius Thomas. And you pass on the running back position until maybe the fourth or fifth round where you're looking at Jonathan Stewart. Uh, where you're looking at players like, for example, uh, I think Amir Abdul is probably a little too, uh, that's a little too early for him, but you're looking at players that could potentially have good years. Carlos Hyde comes to mind uh, as someone who could be maybe a fourth rounder somewhere in that that area. Yeah, that's a good comparison because you have Stewart at 17 and Hyde at 19. Right. You know, so really close. You're going to be leaning on your quarterback. 
you're going to be hoping that those running backs pan out. Now, I will tell you this, and you know what? I've been doing this a long time. I've been right more often than I've been wrong, but I've been wrong plenty. And God forbid you end up with a Monte Ball, or God forbid you end up with uh, a Zach Stacy. Right. Because that will bury your season uh, unless you get lucky on the waiver wire. So I feel like the running back position is thin. There's a lot of upside plays, like some of the guys that we mentioned. But the players at the top of the draft look back at the production last year. They basically played up to their draft position. Arian Foster did. Adrian Peterson was a completely different story. Yeah, it's an outlier. But he would have. I think we can all be confident in that he would have. Uh, Matt Forte did. Eddie Lacy did. Marshawn Lynch did. Uh, Le'Veon Bell was a third-round pick. I mean, he was a steal. Mm-hmm. There was uh, there was talk about Legarrette Blunt taking care of him. I can remember that last year, and that scared some people off. And, and Bell ended up being better than his draft value uh, and his draft position. So that's why I think you're safe grabbing these running backs. If fantasy football drafts were all about always picking the players who scored the most points, the first 10 picks in a 10-team league would be quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are almost always going to outscore everybody else because of the nature of the position. You have to look at supply and demand, and that's why I avoid the the philosophy that you're describing. It's something that a lot of people will do, and maybe it will work for people. If you hit on a Forsett or a C.J. Anderson uh, in, in 2015, those types of players, then it can absolutely work, and, and you look like a genius. But it's going to be tough if you don't hit on them because then you're going to be scrambling week in and week out trying to figure out who the heck do I start at running back. And anybody who had Bell last season, anybody who had uh, even Forsett, who was pretty consistent all year long, it's nice to get those consistent points from your running back position. Yeah, I almost like look at it like if I don't lock down a stud at RB1, I can't be as risky at RB2 as I might be. If I got that stud, those guys you're talking about, then I, I like to get a little risky at RB2. Sure. Uh, the sports catchers are here with uh, Michael Fabiano, and we're out of time already. I don't know how that went so quick. It's at Michael underscore Fabiano on Twitter, NFL Network. One for me, and then one for you to get out. Um, real sure. quickly, give me two names of guys that over and over again when you're drafting seem to always end up on your teams, and maybe two guys mm-hmm. that you're just staying away from usually. Well, I've done a bunch of mock drafts, and I'm always ending up with Andre Ellington. I'm getting him in the fourth or fifth round. I think people are overestimating David Johnson's impact on that offense. And if Ellington can avoid injuries, and I know he's a risk in that in that, uh, in that scenario, I think he can be a really good top 20 running back. Now, that's been a situation where I'm sort of towards the end of round five. I'm sorry, the end of round four, the beginning of round five. And um, he's been available, and he's been the best running back on my board. I wouldn't be afraid to draft him. Uh, I always build running back depth, so it doesn't really affect me terribly if my fourth or fifth round running back is injured or doesn't play as well because the philosophy that I utilize is I'm getting five running backs and I'm probably drafting three running backs in my first six picks. Uh, The other player that I'm constantly landing, honestly, is Tom Brady. Every time he's on the board in the 10th round, I'm taking him. And I will play him for 12 weeks, assuming I make it to the championship. 
or at the very least, I have him for a pretty good portion of the regular season in fantasy. Um, a couple of players that I'm avoiding. Now, I will tell you this. I never say never with a player. If DeMarco Murray falls to me in the third round, I'm drafting him. Right. There's I, always a value. I, but I'm worried about him. I know DeMarco. I like DeMarco. I hope he does well in Philadelphia, except for when he plays my Cowboys. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm just afraid he's going to get hurt. After over 400 touches last year, after over 390 carries last year, just including the regular season, going to a team that runs a lot of plays and has a pretty good run-blocking offensive line, not as good as the Dallas Cowboys, going to a team where Ryan Matthews is in the mix, where Darren Stoles is in the mix, where he didn't score 300 fantasy points on over 400 touches, he's going to see, in my estimation, a 100-point drop in, in 2015 if we're talking about fantasy football. And I don't know that it's. I think it's common. I mean, it's. I don't. I don't see it being a question. I think it's inevitable. Another player that I'm going to be avoiding. And again, I never say never. I really don't. But I don't like Brandon Marshall going to the Jets. I don't know how you can expect him to produce anything close to what he did in Chicago, and even earlier in his career, when he hadn't played with Jay Cutler, his numbers go down. Okay, and O'Cutler's not an awesome quarterback in fantasy for the most part, but they make really good music together when it comes to your when it comes to your scoring. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a receiver who had nine hundred and fifty yards and seven touchdowns. Something like that, which would make him a three somewhere in that area. But his days as an elite wide receiver are over as long as Geno Smith is throwing on the football. Yeah, the Jets is just like a fantasy wasteland, it feels like, still. They've right. got some good names. Yeah, and Decker was better than I, I mean, thought there last year, but I where, didn't think where much. Where the Jets are going to make the biggest impact in fantasy is by the matchups that you're going to have to avoid when your players are going up against them. Right. You're not going to be able to start a lot of running backs with confidence against the Jets, and you're not going to be able to start a lot of quarterbacks and wide receivers against the Jets with confidence because you've got Revis and Cromartie in there. Uh, the, the secondary is a whole heck of a lot better. And, uh, you know, of course, they, they, they do lose is it Richardson or Muhammad. I always get those two mixed up to the suspension, but right, uh, he'll be back. And I, I just really think that um, that defense is going to wreak havoc. Uh, they're going to be really tough to score on, but the Jets are not going to score a lot of points either. All right, again, I said at Michael underscore Fabiano. That's the Twitter. And NFL.com, uh, you go to fantasy from there. You can just go fantasy.nfl.com for a bunch of great stuff. Mm-hmm. Great draft kit um, on there. What, f- one, two, three, four, five different rankings. Uh, more opinions, the better usually for fantasy. But uh, obviously, Michael's is the best of the five. Uh, tell me everything else uh, that you want to let my listeners know about uh, the game on NFL.com, why they should play there, and anything else you want them to know about Plug-wise, I mean, you're going to be just about everywhere this month, so lead us that way if you want before we, on your way out here. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's Sheldon Richardson who's going to be suspended or has been suspended. So, Okay, um, we were both. Yeah, that's we started, right. Yeah. We started inside training camp today. Uh, so NFL Fantasy Live's team will be on inside training camp uh, for the next week and a half. Starting next week, we're doing a new show. It's called NFL Preseason HQ. And that show is going to be on very early on the Pacific uh, Coast, that's for sure. Um, it's going to be on 
5 to 7, but it will be on the East Coast, 8 to 10. And it's going to have myself. Alibar Arrington is going to be on it. We're going to have uh, insider reports. We're going to have fantasy analysis. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be the first time that a show like this is going to have a fantasy analyst involved for the entire show. Yeah, it's going to be really, really great to not only incorporate insider information with the perspectives of former players, but also getting that fantasy spin as well. NFL Fantasy Live is going to be starting August 17th on NFL Now, and then we'll be picking up on the network starting the first week of the regular season. So we're looking at right around September 7th. And uh, then we're on every day, Monday through Friday, and then Sunday mornings is there on a the podcast channel, uh, helping you set your lineup. Is there a podcast too, Michael, people can listen to right now? Thought I read something. There is a podcast. We are actually doing two podcasts uh, during the week. I believe it's Tuesdays and Fridays, although some of the schedules haven't been set up yet. But we will have our own podcast. We're we're bringing it back. The last couple of years, we had just sort of used the audio from our show in the podcast. Uh, Now it's going to be an actual podcast, so you'll see uh, a rotating. Uh, core of, of talent and analysts, myself, Adam Rank, uh, Mark Scrant, Alex Galhar, James Coe, uh, that will be on Tuesdays and Fridays. Right now it's just on Tuesdays. Awesome, yeah, and the app, uh, the NFL uh, Fantasy app, oh, it awesome. gets better every year. Yeah, it's awesome. Looks amazing they, on the they iPad, really did too. did a great job yeah. of it. Yeah, there is a feature now on the app where you can actually send text message league invites to your friends so instead of email you can text them they click on a link and they join your league you can also create your scoring system your rules all that stuff in the app you don't even get on your computer so it's um it's as you mentioned getting better every year and um this year it's very very much user friendly uh, just like it's been in the past but even more so well listen we have had um, Lee Jenkins uh, talked to us from his hotel room at the finals. Um, Luke Wynn uh, the, right before the start of the final four. Um, and all of that is just as amazing as you coming on for now way longer than we discussed um, in July, August this time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you uh, so much for doing this. And uh, uh, please listen to all that great stuff that Michael just uh uh, said to to make it seem justified that he spent all this time with me. So he probably <laughs> he probably could have used it uh, in a more wise uh, way. But thank you uh, so much for doing it. You got it. Okay. All right, my man. Good to talk to you. Yep. All right. I want to thank Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network. And Joe Poznanski for being on the podcast today. You can find today's podcast and all of our podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find it on Stitcher Radio, uh, Downcast. I read in one of my Mac magazines, Don, that Instacast is dead. Hmm. Um, is that a Mac only thing? I'm not sure. Uh, I no. Heard. I think they had Android, Android and yeah. iOS, but it was one of the more popular podcast catchers. Yeah, I think I use Podkicker. I don't know how I came That's to it. That's a popular it's one. just the one I use. So. And uh, so like all those things, we're on there. Yep. And if for some reason we're not, let us know and 
We'll figure it out. We've done that in the past. Right. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, uh, or you can find Don at Don Like Sports, or you can email us at sportscasters at g- gmail.com, uh, just like our friend uh, Bill McGrath did this week. Made my yeah. weekend. Hell of a guy. Sure, I've always yeah. said the people of Central Kentucky are are just the best. They had a really smart, well thought out email follow up, even to the one he originally sent. Yeah, you know, he was just trying to be nice, and then yeah. of course I say, "Well, since you're being nice, you need to give me information." Yeah. <laughs> and he was totally cool about doing that. Yeah. So, all right, I'll start this week. Uh, one last thing for me: we haven't done the interview with Michael Fabiano yet, so but I'm sure we're not going to get too deep into how to set up my fantasy league. And I've pulled. Uh, kind of the listeners in the past about unique ideas that set your league apart. And we've gotten some good ideas, some maybe a little bit too crazy for me. And actually, I've been writing a bunch down. I've been doing mock drafts, and I've been asking people in, in the, the mock chat? drafts. Oh, that's cool. And I got like 30 things written down. So in the next week or two, we're going to do a five on fantasy. Sweet. And we will uh, talk about a whole list of these new things I have. One thing I've always wanted to do with fantasy is start a dynasty league. I like the idea of having essentially no off season. I like every move you make mattering. Um, I like the keeper aspect, but sometimes in a keeper league, someone just runs away with the league because everyone else is redrafting. And there's a guy with keepers that have just happened to have really hit. Uh, so I wanted to start a dynasty league. So I guess I'll throw out there to anyone in the audience that's had one, what works, what doesn't work, uh, what makes them, unique i probably don't want anything too wacky we were talking about salary caps and stuff with some buddies that are going to be in the league and right that, contracts that's that's probably as complex as i would want to get and even that might be a little too complex but we'll we'll work all that out but give me some ideas let me know what i'm a, a dynasty league virgin let me know what i what i need to know and uh i think one thing we agreed on and talking it out is to start it you have to do an auction because yeah, I, I if like you're, if you're going to give someone Adrian Peterson forever, everyone should have a chance to right. have him forever. Right. I mean, that point, yeah. Right. Um, and then I think that after that, you could never have an auction again. No, I don't Otherwise, you're kind of defeating the purpose. I think all the redraft leagues have to be uh, drafts. From that point on, all the, the drafts, the redrafts, have to be for just rookies and guys who are cut. And we need to build that from the worst to the best. Right. Yeah, parody. I mean, I've read, done some homework on Dynasty Leagues. And just like a real sports league, at least if you're a fan of a bad team, parody is good for your league. Uh, you don't want someone that's just going to want to quit. I want 12 guys in the league that are going to be there 10 years from now. Right. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Let us know. Uh, the sportscasters at gmail.com, at Sports on Twitter, at uh, sports underscore casters. You want to give an email? Um, in case they want to hit you directly on email or just want to – the sportscasters at gmail.com yeah. is good. All right. Okay, this had to come up at some point, right? <laughs> we played the highlight at the top, and obviously the news came late one night. I want to say Wednesday or Thursday uh, that Hulk Hogan um, was caught making a crazy racist rant, and because of it, the WWF was wiping them out of their history. Right. Yeah. On their website, they basically erased any mention of him. Now, luckily, they didn't do that on the network because you really couldn't have the network if you did that. I mean, you'd have to literally take off like half of the WrestleManias. 
And, I mean, they have, like, WrestleMania 20 on there, which ends with Chris Benoit winning the title in the ring. And, like, no matter how much you hate racism, you got to kind of hate killing kids more, <laughs> right. I would think. Um, but, so, first it was, uh, this is kind of what's happening, and everyone's scrambling to figure it out. And the next day, the National Requirer and Radar Online teamed up to release what was a transcript uh, from a portion of the sex tape that is being contested in court, Hulk Hogan versus Gawker. Uh, this is a conversation recorded in 2008 um, where Hulk Hogan uh, is apparently upset about his daughter, Brooke, uh, signing on to have someone besides him kind of take over her music career. And Hulk speculates that maybe she's sleeping with this guy's brother and... He's mad, and he drops a bunch of N-bombs and says, like, hey, I guess I'm a racist. We're all racist to some degree or something like that, and it's it's bad. It's it's not a good look. I mean, it's one of those things that there's really no kind of getting out of it. Yeah. You just kind of you fall on the sword, and you hope that people forgive you, I think, which is what he seemed to be doing at first, right? It was like as I was catching up when I woke up the next day, it was like, okay, here's WWE statement, here's the actual release from National Enquirer, and here's Hulk Hogan's obviously written by a lawyer statement where he says, I made some bad statements, I let myself down, but that's not how I think, and I'm sorry. Right? The, the script for all this, all the time. But then he got weird, and he was like retweeting people who said that the president used the n-word and like got away with it or praised yet hogan uses it but completely ignores like context right, and right. you know like the president used it but of course if you look at context he used it to say that racism still exists right, right. and then hogan used it to say that he doesn't want black people touching his daughter <laughs> right. at best right. so so that was weird. And then he was letting the internet clown him, right? Yeah. People were tweeting pictures of football, soccer players, football players, um, black ones with white guys. And people would say, hey, this is me and my buddy, and we're big Hogan fans, and we know you're not racist. And he was retweeting them. Okay. Because he didn't know that they were <laughs> soccer players. <laughs> Oh boy! So it's kind of like if at time like sports and a tweet to the Hulkster saying, "Hey Hulk, me and my buddy here believe in you," and it's a picture of you with, I don't know, uh, Pele. Yeah. And Hulk just doesn't know it's Pele, so he retweets it, thinking, "Yeah, there's a white and a black guy on my side." Both Hogan fans. Now, so I, there was that, and there's more. Okay. Then there was his daughter's poem. I yes. I and did, who I knew? Did hear this? Yeah. Who knew she was such a poet? Right. I mean, it's a beautiful poem. And, of course, the debacle of Hulk apparently not knowing how to tweet a link. So he tweeted a picture of the link in a text message <laughs> on his phone. <laughs> and someone, like, called him on that. And he said, well, I don't know how to do it, brother. So. Poor guy. I just don't know what to say or do. Yeah, you don't like when your heroes kind of go out this way. And, like, anyone that was a kid in the mid-'80s, this is, this is a rough one. You don't like <laughs> I didn't hear about the picture of the text message link. That's pretty funny. It doesn't tarnish it for me in the end, though, because to me, Terry Biola did this. 
Yeah. And Hulk Hogan, the character. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Luckily, I'm old enough to understand. Right. What is? I know the difference. What is Hulk doing right now? Was the extent of his life he like was, the reality show that they he had? He was working on Tough Enough. Oh, okay. The WWE show. So he was show. employed by the WWE. He was employed by them. And, of course, there's a dispute over who left who. Okay, they sure. say he fired. They say he was fired. He says, oh, I walked away, brother. Sure. So there's that. Yeah, sure he did. Um, he had a legend's role in the company. Right. Yeah, they bring him out here and then, play the music. He cut some really bad, sloppy old man promos. Yeah. He had these delusions he'd get a WrestleMania match with John Cena someday as like a final match. So what, what even though he can't even do a leg drop anymore as he has like fake hips. What ultimately was his final match then? Was it uh I know he fought the rock, but that's going way back. Yeah, that was WrestleMania eighteen, I think. Yeah, but he was in a couple Uh he's been in them. I don't know. Yeah. Nothing memorable. Yeah, there. maybe McMahon. Yeah, maybe he should have just walked away from that rock match. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. He would never go out losing though. No. <laughs> he could he's gotta get the last word, you know. Oh yeah. I don't know. It's look it it's a bummer. Right? Like and it sucks for the WWE. Like how do you you can't go on forever pretending like Hulk Hogan wasn't your champion for like two decades. Yeah, and you said Benoit you, is still on the website. He's on the network. He's on the network. Okay. You know, in the sense that you can watch WrestleMania 20 or whatever. Yeah. If there was a pay-per-view that he wrestled, yeah. you can watch that. It's just the same as watching an OJ game. Sure, right. You know, it'd be ridiculous to take the Benoit match off. Right. He was in the main event of WrestleMania 20, so what would you do? Just the second-to-last match, like... <laughs> That was it. Runs, and then you cut it out. Good game. No, I mean, it happened. Yep. Now, in the description, it doesn't say, like, watch Chris Benoit win the title then WrestleMania 20. Right. You know, it's just kind of all there without comment. Sure. You know, for the the history of it, I yeah, guess. Yeah. For the, so you can watch it. Yeah, the, the pretending it didn't exist is weird. And it's easier to do for Benoit than a guy who was literally the biggest star in the history right. of wrestling. Yeah, they just take all the WrestleManias off the air now. So I don't know what they're gonna do. They're gonna they should run the WrestleMania, but uh, just have Hogan like still show the matches, but have him blurred out in the matches. The best thing that Hulk can do: step away from Twitter, back away, come back in a year, sit down with Matt Lawler, whoever it is. Tell them how sorry you are, brother. Hope they'll forgive you. And then maybe you can at least come to the Hall of Fame every year and have your name mentioned on TV. But that is probably about as good as he's going to get.